Welcome back to episode six of the Verde podcast. Every week we talk to local business leaders and entrepreneurs to understand the real story that doesn't make it to the spotlight, but is how actual businesses are actually built here in Chicago. Today we have David Kelbaugh, who's founder of Tacklebox Brand Partners. Welcome, David. Hey, thanks, Jamie. Good to see you. Good to see you again, as always. Um, so I always like to start these stories. Uh, tell me a little bit about Tacklebox Brand Partners, how it started, what drove you. I know you in particular have a lot of big name brand agency experience, and, and what drove you to start your own company versus to continue in the path of growing within a bigger organization? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I think I've, I've always known exactly what it is that I'm going to do for a living. What I didn't know is if I would do it for a big ad agency or eventually start my own. And I love, love branding, love marketing, because it, it allows me to use both sides of my brain, right? And so as I worked at the larger ad agencies around Chicago, what I quickly learned was they, they look for well-rounded employees that can use both sides of the brain, but very rarely can you find a job where you're permitted to use both sides of your brain. Mm-hmm. The big ad agencies are so large that they have to have a process, they have to have roles and responsibilities. Everybody has their own lane that they have to swim in. And I, I kind of wanted to jump from one lane to the next because I love every part about this industry. So I figured if I started my own company, I could allow myself to get into the lanes that I'm best at or, or maybe the lanes that um, I enjoy the most. And how much of your time? So t- how old is Tacklebox? Tacklebox is about four years old. Okay, I've been you know in the ad agency world for fifteen plus. Although it, I can't believe it's been that long, really. Um, and you know we've we've started working with nothing but startups four years ago, mm-hmm. with the belief that you know my team. I hired a team that really wanted diversity in projects and clients. And you, you, again, you don't really get that at the big ad agencies. It's like you're going to work on Marlboro, you're going to work on Allstate, you're going to work on Kellogg's, and who knows, you may st- spend your entire career pushing nothing but cereal or cigarettes. Mm. And the team that I've built around me didn't really want that. So we've worked with, I want to say, like close to 80 clients now in, in just four years. Wow. And that diversity really keeps us alive. And you still today? Do you still work with larger companies, or is it all startups? Yeah, it's the we're not like actively pursuing uh, the bigger companies, but yeah. we're proud to call Goose Island a client. We're proud to call Procter and Gamble a client. Um, very recently, a, um, a Berkshire Hathaway company mm-hmm. signed on with us. So even though we're not chasing them, they seem to be finding us, uh, which I'm grateful for. <laughs> yeah. Do you like the now that you're running your own business? Do you like the diversity of? both the smaller and larger companies as clients, or do you long for a day where it's ex- you can say no to the bigger clients? I love both. Yeah. I-, I love the passion of a founder, but sort of the textbook marketing perspective of a marketing director at a large company, right? It's, it's, it's completely different. Um, founders oftentimes want their brand to be a reflection of them, and we can debate about the merits of that, but very rarely would a marketing director at a large Fortune 500 company want their brand to be a reflection of them, right? They're, they're in for making money. Right. And it's great to work with both of those types of clients. 
I know you, you do a, a decent amount of work with like venture capital firms and other kind of startup ecosystem folks. Yeah. You mind telling me a little bit about them and how they, how they act? Do they act more? I would imagine they act more like a larger corporate client. Yeah. You know, I, over the past 10 years, I think venture capitalists have done a good job of beating very metric-based marketing into the minds of founders and co-founders, cost-per-click advertising, um, cost-per-acquisition, cost-per-lead. And I think when you do focus on that lower-funnel-type marketing that the venture capitalists have encouraged companies to focus on, um, that leads to a pretty strong disregard for your brand and sort of the, the softer side of marketing. Um, but what you'll find is if you do invest and if you do take the time to get your brand right, all of the lower funnel marketing metrics start to perform better, right? So at one point when a company's path was determined by its cost per conversion rates, now it's, it's that, but it's now it's also brand appeal and media coverage, um, so I think this has been a very good time for Tacklebox to work with startups because it's still metric and data-based, but not as much as it used to be. There's more to it than just cost per acquisition. Uh, so I, I know you know that I came out of 1871, one of the early, or the first companies that were there, and uh, we actually just interviewed Ryan from Revolutions recently, and that was fun to catch up with someone because he's gone through a little bit of funding recently. Um, Last year, I think they had a pretty decent size raise, and uh, we were talking off before the podcast a lot of how that's affected uh, their strategy and their way for growth, and they're accelerating their 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 customer acquisition. You know, because they raised the money, they spent that money on customer acquisition, mm-hmm. so they have grown in an amazing fashion. Mm-hmm. Do you? I just find this curious because mm-hmm. I had a lot of co- friends of mine that would go through and raise money, and they were you know. They were so elated that first day they got that funding, and then for like the next nine months they were like in like feeling pressure that I had never personally experienced because I've never raised money. Mm-hmm. From a marketing perspective, do you find the startups that are funded by venture capital or outside capital to be willing to take more risk and do more exciting things from a marketing perspective, or do they? We don't work with a ton of funded startups to be honest with you we work with a couple and i'm trying to think how my experience with them differs from the experience from the others i you know on occasion those types will will say well how do i justify that to my investors Mm. right so there's like a a secondary anytime we suggest that a, a client of ours undergoes a marketing initiative they have to understand how to sell it upward right because on a weekly basis, those investors are asking, how's the money being spent? So there's a little bit more extra work, I think, in working with a funded company. It's good. It, it shows diligence. But that's not something we have to deal with with non-funded clients. Other than that, I find there's not that much difference in terms of risk, risk threshold between funded and non-funded, in my opinion. Yeah, we had I, I hadn't mentioned this yet in the podcast, but we actually used you to do our marketing rebranding effort. Uh, we had a great experience, which is obviously why we're still here <laughs> talking. Um, and a lot of what your approach was to interview our customers, which I thought was pretty brilliant. Um, and I would imagine, so what you just described, instead of going to the customers, you kind of got to go up 
and that kind of would kind of interfere a little bit with the process. And that's something I always, you know, and take it from a guy who never saw or got funding, so maybe I'm just jaded in my own way, but I always get worried when people spend too much time pitching their concept to an investor, which is a customer almost, instead of focusing on the customer, which is what, uh, you know, we were fortunate to be able to do. Yeah, so. yeah. Uh, look, everybody, money raised seems to be, like, now the holy grail for a company's success. Like, I sent out a tweet, I don't know, a few months ago, and I've been thinking about it ever since. I said, when did the success of a company come to be measured by money raised instead of money earned. Yeah. And it's so funny. All the headlines are, you know, so-and-so raises $80 million from, but we're not, we're not talking about profitability. Like, right. I guess a lot of that's because private companies hold their profitability to themselves. And so there's not much for the press to talk about other than money raised. Unless of course you're a public company, in which case, Profit and revenue is all free, freely exchanged. But I just, I, I guess fun, being funded is a nice way to evaluate the success of your company. But I think that's a metric that's overrated. Yeah. Personally, I mean, you, you've heard, you've seen. If you've seen the headlines, the bigger they are, the, the harder they fall. Yeah. Especially recently, I'm yeah. like, this is like the best reality show I've ever seen. Is the headlines on cranes and. Chicago Tribune. It makes for good reading. Yeah. But uh, I don't know. I'd be I, if I were. We never raised money either, and it would make me really nervous to do it. Yeah. Because that's. Uh, I don't like it. <laughs> right. I think I. I think I come from a similar place where it's like I don't like using other people's money. I don't like spending other people's money. Yeah. So I think I would have been a very terrible entrepreneur using venture funding. So, however, if I do end up raising money in the future, I will delete this, uh, <laughs> yeah, right. edit this podcast and <laughs> have that part removed. But, yeah. Um, I think there's a, like, if, if you have a bunch of POs and you need to fund the manufacturing of something, sure, have at it, right? Because yeah. that's, or a line of credit. Like, I see benefits to that kind of funding, but, yeah. eek, I don't, I don't need too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. Well, and I, and I do, I do see that there's definitely a place in the world that, that capital is important and, that, and we've grown through our line of credit and there's been times where oh. we maxed it out and it was very painful. Wow. Um, we just had to be patient. We couldn't grow as fast as we wanted about a year and a half ago. And that was, you know, I learned some lessons from that and it was painful, but, um, so I could see, especially when it comes to building something like software where there's very little, you have to build the product and then the ability to execute on one additional customer is pretty, the marginal cost is pretty low. Yeah, that's true. Um, but it's, I think sometimes people forget that the business comes down to revenue and <coughs> customers. And, and when you build too much, you get too focused on building this amazing product, you forget about the customers. So, yeah. Um, well, that's why I like your approach to marketing so much. So oh, good. Yeah. Thanks. So, um, we got a little off topic there, but it was fun uh, for me. So it was fun. I like to commonly complain about venture capital. <laughs> What are some of your favorite parts about running your business over the last four years? You know, I think what I love is that I've, I'm now in business producing a product that's the single best way that I know how to help businesses. Like, I'm doing... I've referred to myself as a one-trick pony, in a way. Like, I cannot help raise money. I cannot help 
Like the one thing that I know how to do and the one thing that I love to do is help companies show their face to the world in the right way. Hmm. And it's really rewarding. It's really gratifying. So I love to see that transformation of from a company from what it was to a company that it is. Hmm. Um, I think there are so many companies that have great products, great services, but if their brand is not as equally great or better, they're never going to reach their full potential, right? There's an inordinate amount of energy spent on perfecting the product, perfecting the service. And in my opinion, brand is more important than ever. And so if you're turning your back on taking care of your brand, just as you take care of your product, I think you're doing yourself a disservice. In fact, you saw our process. So you know that we build brands a lot like companies build products. Yeah. We manufacture it. We test it. We refine it. We create a, you know, a process or an operations manual to guide it. Yeah. And then the rest becomes easy because the molds are in place. Your brand now has a mold and it's just a matter of manufacturing it and syndicating it through the channels that will help you reach your target audience. I wouldn't go as far as to say that uh, we automate it. That'd be nice, but you can't automate the creation of a brand, but we do process it. We do build it um, in a, a lot like a house is built or a product's built. What, what's your favorite part of the... I mean, you're totally right. I saw your process. It is kind of... You, I can see how it becomes... It's a playbook, right? And you run it. You run it. And sometimes you make a little few changes. But yeah, uh, you come out with a good product over and over again. And it's it, it's important. Do you... Do you, what do you enjoy more? I'm just curious from knowing you. Do you enjoy the sitting with the customer and really closing the deal? Communicating the value that Tackle Box Brand Partners brings? Or do you like to go back after you get the customer interviews done and like creatively like whiteboard and just, Oh man, that's a great question. Again, I think the reason I never felt at home at a big ad agency is because I like to do all of it. Yeah. I, I, I promise you every single step of the way I've built this company to be what I love to do. And I've been able to find people and hire people that love to do the same thing. So I, I love it all. Um, I probably, I'm slightly more biased towards the new business at this point than I am the creative. Part of that's because I have some people on my team that are better at creative than I am. So I'll let them do the whiteboarding and I'll kind of come in at the 11th hour and help them understand the difference between the great ideas on the board and the good ideas. Um, What, what do you like to do? I like, I don't like operations. I mean, from our, from our business, it's, it's really sales and then, you know, we have to execute on the sale. Right. Um, if I had to, like, if I ever had to, like, go over and start a new company, I would actually, I always tell people this, I would just do this every part of the business, but just myself. I would sell the concept. I'd go screw in the lights myself. I would, you know, I would do every part of it myself and not have the whole team. Yes. But now that we have the team, again, people who do a lot better than I do, yeah. I don't like the operational part, so I just like the new business and sales. Yeah. yeah. Um, I like talking to customers and hearing their pain points because it evolves constantly and it's a unique kind of qualitative challenge to me. Um, but the playbook, I get kind of boxed in of like the same thing over and over again. I never liked that in any of my previous professions. <laughs> so yeah. um, and we have a lot more customers. You, you know... We have a, we could have a small customer with you know 
we could go through five customers a day, basically, which is much different. So that gets much more monotonous than you. It sounds like you've got 80 over four years, so 20 a year. There'd be a lot more. I'd probably be more inclined to be excited about some that kind of business. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I definitely love new new uh, customer acquisition. Is my yeah. That's what I wake up thinking about every day. So. Yeah, right. Because it's your baby. I mean, yeah. you built the business both to make money, but also to be what you're passionate about. And who wouldn't want to? convince others that it's a beautiful thing to do yeah because it is yeah Yeah, absolutely that's great what is the most challenging time you recall at tackle box well i two point two points in our career i think the first was just starting out when i had zero dollar zero clients zero sales it was me in my basement with my laptop worrying about where the next paycheck would come from had you had you quit your full time job at that point? Yeah, right away. Yeah, yeah. I had I had one paying client at the time, and I was so I wasn't really sure of myself at that point. Like I had no proof that what I'm doing actually works. Right, yeah. so I had a hard time charging fair market value for my time. My wife was like, uh, how long is this experiment going to happen? Yeah. One client became two, became three, became four. And so I kind of got over that nervousness, but it took six months, I think, before I felt like I really had something here. And I'd say the second hardest time is right now. Like I often refer to Tacklebox as the awkward teenager, you know, we're like kind of small, but kind of big. We're like, it's that scaling, you know, everyone talks about how hard it is to scale a business because... That's when you have to make investments, and that's when you as a founder have to let go and lengthen the leashes to your employees. And, like, it's hard. It's hard to figure out what that length of leash would be. I guess, like, honestly, back to our funding conversation, if I've got, if I got a million bucks in funding, not that I'm looking for it, I think that would make my decision of how long the leash should be a lot easier. Because I'd have budget to fund this person and this person and this person and this person. Yeah. I could put it more easily put a staffing plan to a stable million-dollar check than I could revenue that ebbs and flows. Yeah. That's the hardest, hardest part. Yeah, we have, we have a similar issue where we, we get a bit cyclical. So, you know, last year there was one month we did over 500000 revenue, and then we had a couple probably two or three months, a different time of year that we're more like in the half of that size. Wow, yeah. And so my biggest fear today is hiring a bunch of team that I then have to let go. And so sometimes that drives me to make really poor business decisions because of my fear. Yes. And uh, I could see how the the funding would help you be like, all right, well, I've got nine months of runway. Yeah. Better spend it and let's go. Yeah, here's your goals, everybody. You know, if you you achieve these objectives, we're going to be able to pay our money back to our investors. But there's no, like, black or white when you're self-funded trying to scale. Yeah. Yeah, scaling is really tough. It's really... Well, you've done it well. You you seem to be hiring and... Yeah, I don't know if I've done it well. I, uh, we've we've done it. I'm not sure why I describe it as well. Um, because I do let fear drive a lot of my decisions. And that's... I, I have to let those go. I need to, like, go see Yoda on the dark side somewhere to, like, <laughs> kind of let go of the... The fears that I have, and and every year I get a little bit better. Where I go, I have an experience to really be like, okay, I I know 
I was really worried in just November, December about having a really slow time, and it just, you know, we made things happen. And I have to have more confidence in the team yeah. and let that leash go a little bit longer and let them run and, and trust. And, and it is hard. It is, it is, becomes your baby, and it's hard to, it's hard to let other people. I want to be a boss or I want to be an owner that lets the team run, and I just kind of watch and learn. And, it, and that's who I want to be, but yes. who I am in real life is totally different. Oh, sure. I know. It's so hard. And part of that's because you spent so much time doing it yourself. I think the first, what, five years you were kind of a solopreneur? Yeah, I think it was four years. Four yeah. years. So you know every little nut and bolt of how things are done. So the, the fact that someone walks in with a nail instead of a screw f- to solve a particular problem, you're like, um... Yeah. The only benefit I've got is I'm a terrible. I'm terrible at paying attention to details. So sometimes okay. things, uh, infrastructure builds around me without me even knowing. <laughs> that's a surprise. Yeah, so, that's a good idea. Yeah. So, um, so I feel like you know we could probably talk for 20 more minutes about that. But I, I'm going to head into my last question for you. Sure, sure. Uh, tell me a little bit about your experience in making sustainability a priority in your business and how you operate it. I know that you are a unique business where it's very service-based and, and very people-based. There's not, you know, you don't need a huge warehouse or a manufacturing facility or a kitchen. Um, so how does that play out in your decision-makings of, of running Tacklebox? Yeah, I think I'm, I call myself like a, a sensible environmentalist, right? <clears throat> I don't, I, I couldn't see myself adding an hour and a half to my commute to reduce my carbon footprint a little bit. But at the same time, when I have the choice between taking an Uber or an Uber share, an Uber pool or whatever, I'll do the Uber pool. That's a more sensible use of car emissions, in my opinion. I'll turn out the lights when I leave the room. My team and I, we looked at probably 30 offices for, of our own, and they all felt too big. And I think part of that was because it was the environmentalist in the back of my head thinking, this is a lot of space for a team that's five to ten people. On its biggest day, we're only ten people. So that's when we started to look into co-working. You were at 1871. We decided to go with WeWork in the West Loop. The office is small. But it's not more than we need. Mm-hmm. The lights are shared. The printer's shared. The paper's shared. And I've tried to, to think long and hard before I hit print, you know, as it relates to paper usage, which is not exactly something you guys work on. But um, when I have the choice between saving a PDF or printing it, I'll save it onto my computer. I'm always always been a uh, big public transportation fan i think despite its ups and downs the trains and the buses here in this city are really well run especially when you get a day like today with it snowing out yeah. you know to be able to hop on that train and not have to worry about the roads you know being slippery is, is pretty incredible yeah um, it, it's 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 an incredible asset the city has that doesn't get discussed it's just kind of a, a, a thankless job the cta does now the buses aren't always on time, and they're and they're not great, but the trains run pretty smooth. So agreed, agreed. When you uh, when you're at WeWork, I'm curious if you've ever thought about because we 
1871 kind of had this number where it was like once you got over five people, it was often cheaper to have your own space. Didn't mean it was easier because then you've got to maintain, yes, you know, your own computers and printers and things like that. Yeah. Is there a number of, of staff at Tackle Box where it becomes more cost effective to move out of WeWork, or you would still choose to stay there because of the benefits of shared? The latter. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you, I like it there, but my team loves it there. Mm-hmm. It's. As a company of five to ten people, um, it's hard to form a company culture. And that place we work comes with a bit of a company culture. Yeah. It's social, there's things to do, it's loud, it's cool. So the, the younger people on my team love it. Yeah. I wouldn't want, I'd feel like I'm pulling the rug out from under them yeah. if I moved to save a few bucks. Not to say that it won't happen someday, but. I, we, we were ta- I was talking about moving out of it um, right before Christmas break, and it did not go over well. <laughs> My team loves it there. Yeah. And I, I get it. Yeah. It is pretty simple living. You yeah. know, it's almost like a retirement community for cool kids where, like, everything's taken care of. Right. Right? You don't have to remember to order paper or coffee. Um, so it's cool. We like it a lot. Well, the West Loop is great, too, because it's that central hub. All transit is designed to go there, so you, you can't have a bad commute getting there. Right, so. right. The one, the one gripe is I wish there was less expensive lunch places around there. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's hard to get, like, a $4 sub in that, in that neighborhood. Yeah. So I, uh, I'll bring my own lunch most days. <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe there's another startup idea there. Yeah. Shared lunch spaces. Uh, <laughs> shared, expensive. Shared plates. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, so, but I will say this, Jamie, like if, if I had larger space and if it were space of our own, I would seriously put some thought into the, your approach to saving, saving money as it relates to electricity. But the fixtures are kind of beyond my control yeah. at WeWork and, um, I can't really adjust the thermostat. Like I can't do all the smart things I know that you know are good yeah. ideas, unfortunately. But you could... You know, you could have the, you could have a space with the most efficient lighting ever, and if like at WeWork, even if it's less efficient, if it's shared, it's it's by nature more efficient. It's counterintuitive sometimes, right? But I'm sure they do. I'm sure they since they have heavy usage. I'm sure they've probably put some good thought into it. Yeah. So I bet they have. Yes. Yes. Well, I appreciate you being with us here today, David, and uh, I look forward to sharing this with the world. So Sounds thanks for good. being here. You're welcome, Jamie. All Take right. care. You too.